Welcome to Substance Free 02043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristen Arut, and I am President and Program Director of Hingham Cares. Our mission is to reduce substance use among youth in our community. We want kids to make healthy choices around drugs and alcohol. To that end, we provide programming to the community at large about the inherent risks of underage substance use. Today, our guests are District Attorney Tim Cruz and Plymouth County Sheriff Joe McDonald. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. You have held your respective positions for many years now. Could you tell us what led you into a life of public service? Start or? You go ahead, Sheriff. Okay. <laughs> well, one of my lifelong uh, ambitions <clears throat> was to be a prosecutor, was to be an assistant DA. And I knew that, you know, I was interested in, uh, I was interested in many things. My educational uh, background, I went to Marshfield High School. From there, I went to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And I was a political science major. So I knew I was interested in the politics and the public safety. I thought maybe international relations, something at the federal level. But I knew I wanted to go to law school, too. And in that meanwhile, I realized that my interests were a little bit more local, and I wanted to be a prosecutor. So I went to Suffolk University Law School. I graduated there. I worked in the private sector for a, a while, for a few years, <clears throat> and then had an opportunity when Mike Sullivan was the DA to become an assistant DA, which was my dream job. I did that for several years. First, now Tim had been an assistant DA in the years before I had gotten there, and he was in the defense bar, and it was then that the two of us met, became friends. He was a, a, a great guy, a, a real trustworthy uh, defense lawyer, if there is such a thing, he was it. And how long uh, ago were we talking? Oh, gosh, we're talking. I've been the sheriff for 18 years, so this has got to be, what, 25 years ago? Easy. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe some more than that, yeah. Wow. But it was great, you know, and uh, and that friendship has endured over the years. Tim was appointed the, the district attorney while I was an assistant DA, so I actually got to work a few years under Tim's direction, which was a great thing. You know, as great a defense guy as he was, he was uh, an even better prosecutor and still the same good, trustworthy, honorable guy. I really enjoyed working for him. And then in 2004, uh, some things I saw at the sheriff's office I didn't really approve of or appreciate. And there were a lot of people, I think, that agreed with me. So I ran for the office of sheriff. <clears throat> and I left the DA's office to do that. And I got elected, and I've been there since. I was uh, first sworn in in 2005. And I've learned a tremendous amount uh, with all of the jobs that I've held. But I will say the, this last 18 years has been very rewarding and educational for me personally. I grew up in West Bridgewater, went to the public schools, went to Boston College undergrad, went to Suffolk Law, and was given an opportunity to become an intern at the Plymouth County DA's office in 1983. And that's where I worked, and Bill O'Malley was the DA at the time. He gave me my first opportunity to see what was going on in courts because uh, you know, back then there was no law and order, there was no CSI, there was nothing on television like mm -hmm. you, you get nowadays. So you really had no idea what went on. Uh, and I went, and I liked it, and I uh, became an assistant DA in 1985, did that for four years. And then, as Joe said, I became a defense attorney for about 12 years. Uh, and I was out there doing all sorts of defense work, doing all sorts of uh, personal injury stuff, things along those lines. When I was given the opportunity, and I was appointed by Governor Jane Swift in 2001 uh, to finish out Mike Sullivan's term, Mike had been uh, elected by um, President Bush to become the U.S. attorney. So there was an opening in the DA's office. I was lucky enough to have Governor Swift appoint me to finish out his term. And I've run um, six elections since then. I've been the DA since 2001. And it's really changed since I first walked in the door in the 80s to where we are now. But I think we've been able to do a lot of positive things and make some real positive changes in our community. And I'm really glad to work with people like the sheriff and other people who are making a big difference, including you and Hingham Cares and everybody who's out there working together, understanding that not one person or entity can get anything done. It's going to be everybody together. That's great. Well, one of those positive changes is the Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force that you started in 2015. Uh, I grabbed some numbers off of your website. It was um, started to address the burgeoning opioid epidemic. There were 178 overdose deaths in Plymouth County alone that year, in 2015. And you brought representatives from all sectors of the community to the table to discuss this issue. Tell us about their program and, and what was your inspiration for this novel approach? I think that when I started talking to the sheriff about that back in 2013, 2014, what we noticed, real, the real thing that got our attention uh, to the, the fatal opioid issue was the fact that in one year, our fatal opioid overdoses doubled. It went from it was approximately 52 to 104 in one year. And that was really impressive because heroin and opiates has always been around. It's really nothing mm -hmm. new. 
But how did that happen? So right. then we started seeing uh, a lot of towns putting together their own groups. What do, how do we combat this? How do we fight this? Uh, and that's when we made the determination in 2015 that we wanted to put together a, a clearinghouse, really, to try to make sure we could get all the communities in Plymouth County together so we could bring in legislators and judiciary and faith-based and schools and hospitals. How do we get best practices so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel in every town? And that really was, I think, the, the goal. The goal, the initial goal was to get everybody together, let's talk about it, and then how do we focus and what do we focus on to reduce the supply, reduce the demand? How do you augment the different uh, things that are in our communities to make them better? And I think that really, to me, was the beginning of the task force, and uh, I've seen so many things that came from it, whether it be Plymouth County Outreach, Plymouth County Hub, and the variety of other things that are out there right now that I think are making a positive impact. So you brought all these stakeholders to the table, Sheriff, and from there blossomed into this new initiative. And that initiative has been replicated across the state and across the country, hasn't it? Yeah, I think what um, I find very uh, gratifying, and I know Tim does as well, is the fact that people see that this is working and are emulating that not just across the Commonwealth here, but, but across the country. And it was one of those things, like so many uh, good things, that sort of, it grows itself. You know, you plant the seed, but the, the plant itself thrives on its, on its own. Mm -hmm. the, my conversations with um, Governor Baker when, when he was governor, I remember he was commenting to me once while he was campaigning. He said, one thing that I didn't realize here, because it simmered for many, many years, the opioid issue out there. Mm -hmm. And when the governor, he didn't have this at the fore of his mind when he was running. But as he talked to people, he realized that this is a really big issue, not just in our urban communities, but in our suburban communities as well. And not just, you know, in one part of this, it's statewide. So when he put that task force, his opioid task force together, I was lucky enough to, uh, to get appointed to that by the governor. And one of the first things that uh, I was doing uh, as I was sitting on that ta uh, task force was bringing that information that I was getting from those experts back to what Tim and I were working on back here in Plymouth County. And, you know, we used a lot of what we learned from that statewide task force, which created some very good legislation, too, to tweak what we were doing back here in Plymouth County. So what uh, started out as an idea of just, you know, us talking about these things and looking at the numbers and being surprised, you know, we didn't just scratch our heads and wonder. We, we actually started gathering these people together. And, uh, and it's really, it's become something like so often happens it's much bigger and more effective uh, than I think either of us anticipated. But thank goodness, you know, it's really been a good, a good thing for everybody. It's wonderful. Well, it was directly addressing um, the opioid crisis. So the number of overdose deaths in Plymouth County dropped dramatically to 112 in 2018, but it's jumped back up again since then. Last year, there were 132 opioid-related overdose deaths in Plymouth County. What do you attribute this jump in numbers to? I think one of the things that we saw, um, how positive, first of all, that the Plymouth County outreach was. Outreach came out of the law enforcement aspect of the, the task force. And what Plymouth County outreach is, is getting all 27 communities in Plymouth County, get the police chiefs together, have them sign an MOU, and make sure that they understand that if there's a non-fatal opiate overdose in their town, that if that person is, say, they're from Plymouth, but the, the overdose occurred in Hingham, they're gonna make sure the Hingham police will notify the Plymouth police so that they can bring resources. One of the biggest issues out there is stigma. And so you're actually getting a plainclothes police officer, you're getting a recovery coach coming to your home, bringing information. For uh, the folks in the listening audience who don't know what an MOU is, could you please explain what that is? It's just the, the abbreviation for a, a memorandum of understanding so that if two groups have come to an agreement, you can reduce it to writing and it's called an MOU that we, I understand you're gonna do this, you understand I'm gonna do this, and this is what we could agree to contribute to whatever that venture may be. When outreach began, we saw numbers start going down. Mm -hmm. And then it was going positive in the, the, great, uh, the right direction, 17, 18, and then COVID hit. When COVID hit, those people couldn't go to the homes anymore. So uh. we saw our numbers go back up during COVID. After COVID, or as we're in that area now of after COVID, we've seen our numbers gone back down with once again people being in the position of bringing information directly to the people that need it most, the families, the kids who perhaps uh, are drug-endangered kids, perhaps these kids with adverse childhood experiences, kids who are facing real challenges in the world right now. And we get, we're in a position where not only can we help the people that need the help right now, but how do you stop these cycles of, 
uh, drug abuse going down the road. Helping those kids now is going to save us all from some kids, and save them, really, from really going on some terrible paths in the next 10, 15 years. And yeah. you're talking about children of people who are users. People who are ki kids that are watching their moms, their dads, uh, their uncles, their aunts, the people that they care about most in their life. They're seeing them go down that path. The kids who go to school and don't have breakfast because nobody's taking care of them. The kids who come from broken homes. The kids who need help the most. How do you help those kids now? so that you can stop them from going down and getting what's known as an average child experience, which right. is basically going to be high, high at risk activity in their lives. So I think that that's been very helpful as to what we're doing. Yeah, and I think that's true. And we can sit here and say that we think these things, because we do, we believe these. But it's data-driven as well. And right. that's one of the most important things, and Tim touched upon this, was the fact that you know, we've got some data experts that are working on the task force. And what it's showing us, you know, you can throw money at a problem. Or anything, really, like a medicine, let's say. A doctor's trying to figure out where a problem is. It's nowhere near as effective unless and until you know where the problem lies. Right. And this is the th what we're identifying here. And I think the fact that there was, you know, our numbers have gone way down uh, comparative to other parts of the Commonwealth and other parts of the country. But also when COVID came, and it was a, a real bump in the road. I mean, that's putting it lightly, but uh, but I think that demonstrated when those numbers went back up, when we weren't able to deliver those services to the areas that they were needed based upon the data that we had, you saw those numbers go back up. Right. So I think what that did is show that not only were our numbers valid, but that when we weren't doing these things or doing them as effectively, things were going to get worse. So I think it tells us that we're doing the right thing we're working in the right direction, and we're expending those resources in the right places. And I also think that, you know, as, as what we're doing here, I think there's, there's different things that are going on here. We're really lucky, I think the sheriff and I are, that we work really with a, a good group of men and women who are our Plymouth County police chiefs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in order to get outreach up and running, you had, we had to have an MOU between the 27 police departments as well as Bridgewater State University. Have them all sign on and agree to do this. Now, that's resources you know, some towns have resources, some towns have less than others. How do you get them to all agree to that and, and get in front of this? And when I go around the country, and I know that the, the, the sheriff does too, and I'm on the board of the national DAs, and people ask me what we're doing in Plymouth County, and I talk about outreach, and I talk about our task force. They said, how do you get, you know, 27 police chiefs to agree that today's Tuesday? Never mind that you're going to get everybody on the same page to actively do something. Right. And we're really lucky here that I think they really stepped up and uh, helped, helped us move the ball down the field. Like the sheriff just said, it's, it's very data-driven. So if you have that data to substantiate the work that you're doing, I think it's relatively easy for people yeah. to get on board. We're seeing uh, street drugs and marijuana laced with everything from fentanyl to horse tranquilizers. That was just in the news the other day. What are some of the dangers of using these types of substances? So we have the illicit market, and then we have legalized marijuana now. So we have retail outlets where people can purchase marijuana. What are some of the concerns that you have about youth in particular using these types of substances at a party, for example? Well, I mean, I think obviously fentanyl is, I think last year there were in, in the United States of America 107,000 uh, overdoses. And of that, 66% of those fatal overdoses were from fentanyl. Fentanyl is a very powerful synthetic opiate, which is made in China, which is coming through uh, various ways through our open border, through other areas. It's coming up here in Massachusetts, wherever everything else is. And I think when I talk to the state police who work in my office who deal with the drug issues out there right now, I think that basically you can't trust what you're getting out there. You don't know what you're getting out there, whether it be cocaine. Cocaine is coming back. All right, you're not really sure what that what's in it when you purchase it. I've heard of kids smoking marijuana at parties, and some of it's laced with fentanyl. How do you know what you're getting? I mean, I, I, it's very right. it's strange for me that you know I was I was such an opponent of the legalization of marijuana because I did not believe we were ready in Massachusetts, and I think I'm right. I still think I'm right about that. But now, if somebody's going to smoke marijuana, the only marijuana you can really trust is really the marijuana you purchase from one of the dispensaries. Other than that. Uh, you don't know what you're getting. And kids are out there that perhaps would never think of using an opiate, never think of using fentanyl or carfentanyl or you know, xylazine, you know, one of these, these other drugs that are out there, but they're in the drugs that they're using. And that makes it incredibly dangerous. And how do you stop that? That's, uh, education is certainly a really big thing uh, to make sure we can get the word out as to what's going on. Right. Yeah, I think, Kristen, with, with the legalization of marijuana, uh, first for medical purposes and then recreationally, 
I stood with Tim uh, and many others in the Commonwealth saying that that was a bad idea. And I, I still believe, like Tim, that we were right about that. And I think one of the worst unanticipated consequences of that legalization wasn't the fact that people are getting it now that what may not have before. But I think what it does is it legitimizes the use of that substance. Right. And therefore, you've got these young kids saying, well, geez, my Uncle Bob goes and he buys it down the street at the nice clean store there, and so it must be okay. So I think what that does is it sends a message to those kids that you know this, this is legitimate. This is something It's good for you. It's organic or whatever. And that couldn't be further from the truth most of the time. Right. And, uh, you know, I used to say, and Tim used to kid with me as well, that, you know, in our line of work, and especially in mine, I get to talk to these uh, substance use experts all the time. And they're not MDs or PhDs. They're in the jail. Right. And every single one of them would tell me, you know, because people say, oh, it's not a gateway drug. I don't believe that for a second. Uh, talking to people who are in there for serious crimes, not just drug-related crimes, but crimes of violence that uh, they committed while they were under the influence of those drugs, They'll tell you the same thing to a person that, you know, while not every person that uses marijuana is going to become a heroin addict, right? Every heroin addict that you talk to started with marijuana. Right. So I see a correlation there, and I get that from the experts. So I think the problem is when, when we legitimize something like that, it didn't eliminate the black market like I think some people were hoping. I think it merely enhanced that black market, that illicit market. Right. Well, we talk about, in the prevention world, we talk about the two most important protective factors being modeling positive behavior, which you just touched upon, and access. So if, if access to substances is limited, then use by youth is limited. If parents and other adults in the lives of these kids are modeling positive behavior around substances, meaning not using or using appropriately, then kids are going to get the message about uh, proper use of substances as well. So those are two important things that we want the community to know. In addition to marijuana uh, now being legal, and it's been six years, but it's still, or almost seven, um, but it still feels like it's a relatively new substance. We're still trying to figure it out. The Cannabis Control Commission certainly has their work cut out for them. Are we seeing any other new trends, either with the, the folks that you're seeing in the prison system or the arrests that you're making on your end? Yeah, I mean, you, you, there's more and more dangerous drugs out there, whether it be rainbow fentanyl, which really is for the most part in the western part of our state right now and maybe in Boston. Uh, but make no mistake about it, the people that are selling rainbow fentanyl are going after our kids. It looks like candy. It comes in all various little shapes, different colors. It looks like a rainbow. Mm. It looks like candy. And it looks so, like Skittles. Yeah, so, so the, it's very dangerous stuff. Uh, and if you take one of those, you're in the world of opiates, and that's a tough world to get out of. And the Skittles tagline is, taste the rainbow. Yeah. yeah. They're going after younger people, is the way I look at it. And also then you have the other ones like xylazine, which is a veterinary sedative. And it is not an opiate. But a lot of it, if somebody used xylazine and if they overdosed, it very well may look like they had opiate overdosed. And maybe somebody's Narcan them. It doesn't work on xylazine because it's not an opiate. If somebody's in a position where they see something like that, they should still apply the Narcan and also potentially do heart compressions for them, also trying to keep them alive until professionals get there because of the fact that people are using these things. And, and who would have thought? Right. Kids are using, you know, veterinary things such as that. Ketamine has been, is, is out there, which is another horse tranquilizer. Carfentanil is an elephant tranquilizer. What are people thinking of when they're using these drugs? How can you possibly think that's good to, in your body? And so education is so important to let these kids know. And, and the sheriff's right about, about the marijuana stuff, people being told that it's organic. Kids nowadays all stay away from nicotine, thank goodness, because that's what they're taught. But they do believe that um, marijuana is not that bad for you. And like we said a number of years ago, Massachusetts is not ready for it. And I meant like the, the criminal laws weren't. Right. We don't have a .08 like a blood alcohol like we do for alcohol. We have no corresponding numbers for that. And no we, testing system, Incredibly difficult. No breath test. Incredibly difficult to prove a, a, a driving under the influence of a marijuana case. And more likely than not, you know, those cases, if they go to trial, if there's nothing else out there, uh, somebody's going to be found not guilty. And that's fine, at least for the fact that that person is no longer driving at that time. Mm -hmm. I was on some show and somebody was asking me, so you're going to leave it in the judgment of the police officer to make that determination? I said, absolutely. 
You, that's what we've been doing for years. Police officers have to make observations of the way people operate their motor vehicles, how they're out there, if they have glassy eyes, if they're steady on their, on their feet, if they have a slurred odor if, for alcohol, if they smell of marijuana, the total indicia, the totality of the circumstances. Make the call, because God forbid they make a determination, oh, I can't arrest that guy because I don't know what he's got in his blood alcohol, what his TAC content is. You let that person go and he kills somebody? then you have a whole different avenue of problems. Well, police undergo drug recognition training as some well. Of them, for some those, of them do. Some of them some, do. Some of them do. And in some courts, however, they don't allow us to put drug recognition experts on the stand. So therefore, they become useless to us. So how do you tell a jury, if you're going in front of a jury, how do you define for them right. what, what's out there? And how do you make that determination? Uh, and many times, most people you know, will refuse the breath test, they'll refuse blood tests, they'll refuse doing field sobriety tests. So all they're going to hear is that a car was weaving, a police officer made observations, and they got arrested. Right. And there's not much to it. Right. And that's why, unfortunately, a lot of these people that do need the help, and they do need help, um, are, are beating these cases, and they're going to go back and do it again. A couple of things that give me hope. Tim touched upon, you know, the fact that kids aren't smoking cigarettes these days. Mm -hmm. We have successfully gotten that message out there that this is bad for you. And that's a problem that is not so much a problem anymore. I think now we're dealing with as big an issue with the marijuana as we have with the, the uh, tobacco products. But I think in time we will get there. And I, I, my heart goes out to the young ADAs. I remember when I was one trying uh, the drunk driving cases, that evidence was not, uh, if, if they refused a breathalyzer, we didn't have that. I think one of the things that when these CSI shows come out, everyone's expecting scientific tests with DNA and all kinds of things, but we don't always have those. Right. But, and you touched upon the people that are, uh, the officers that are getting certified as recognition experts for drugs, for alcohol. What I used to argue to the juries is, when you think about it, we are all experts in recognizing those things because we live in the world. Mm -hmm. And I used to tell the jurors, put yourself in the position of that officer. Think about what he described to you. If you saw that, what would that tell you? That's a great point. And I think that that is the way. And I know that the young ADAs are doing that now uh, because I've seen them in action. And I think, you know, people want our communities to be safe. And, uh, you know, sometimes you lose those cases because, you know, you just don't have the evidence that was there. But at least that person was taken off the road while they were impaired that evening or that day when they were driving. So that's a good thing. But I, the one thing I want to come away with here is with hope, and I think that we do have that. Getting kids to stop smoking, stop using tobacco products, that was a big initiative. That was yes. a, an enormous campaign that took the entire community coming together. And I, I think that we need to wake yeah. up to yeah. the, the dangers of marijuana, especially modern-day marijuana, the toxicity or potency levels, I should say, in modern-day marijuana are so different from what our generation grew up right. with. And I think parents today don't fully understand the distinction between you know, yeah. marijuana of yesteryear and modern marijuana. Well, you touched upon the word toxicity, and I think that that is true because we're finding out now that there is a level of toxicity associated with excessive marijuana use that people didn't anticipate. And people are having health problems. Right. And who knows what the long... We'll learn what those long-term issues will be. And I suspect they will be similar to those of the individuals who were long-term tobacco users. Right. And, uh, you know, let's look. I, I think the, the analogy is inescapable because you look at, uh, like, Joe Camel and all of those ads, they clearly were aimed at kids. Mm -hmm. You know, young people. Uh, candy cigarettes. I'm sure we remember having those oh, as yes. kids. Yeah. Yep. I, I hesitate to say that we've won that battle on the tobacco issue, but I think it is because we've 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 got it at bay, and I think this will come to pass as well as people start to realize that wait a minute, this isn't what we thought it was. Well, we saw the same thing with vaping products too. When vaping yes. products came out, it was safer. It was it was water. It was natural. It was you know they they put the uh, flavored cartridges together to appeal to kids. And then we discovered, unfortunately, a little bit too late, that it actually causes significant lung, lung damage and yes. is more dangerous in some respects than traditional cigarettes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Getting back to the question that you had asked, I, I wanted to just jump in there very quickly. Sure. You know, you talked about some of the new trends that are happening. 
And in corrections, you're seeing a lot of new things that are coming up with reference to how we're treating and dealing with these issues within the correctional facility. Several years ago, um, it was brought up and there was some grant money available that, uh, you know, a lot of the individuals on the street who are receiving treatments, uh, the medication-assisted treatments, like your methadones or your suboxones, they were uh, coming to us. And one of the most important things I think that we can offer people that are coming to us for serving a sentence is an ability to get sober and clean, to get off of everything. Mm -hmm. Now, some individuals, that's what they want to do. There are some individuals that feel that they need the methadone or they need the suboxone. They need those types of crutches to keep them from using the other opioids. So it started out that a few of the sheriff's offices in the Commonwealth were funded to have individuals continue those programs. And, uh, you know, there, there was a test out of the state of Rhode Island. And uh, I love data, as you can probably tell. But I thought that the data that was coming out of Rhode Island, now it said that this was really the answer to everything. And I don't believe that. I think it's a tool, but I don't think that's the end game. The data set in Rhode Island was too small, I thought, to be a legitimate representation of how these things would work. But what's happened is a number of the sheriff's offices had started a pilot program, and now all the sheriff's offices are funded to consider that Medicaid, uh, the MOUD, medication treatment for opioid use disorder. Uh -huh. So we're doing that. You know, we'll have uh, the ability now. We've just gotten federal approval uh, to for those individuals that come to us with a prescription uh, that they can continue that, uh, that prescription and course of treatment within the correctional facility. Mm -hmm. It started out, it was a few sheriff's offices, not everyone was funded. We got a little bit of criticism because I wasn't one of the offices that was funded for it, but that was okay. There weren't, number one, there weren't a lot of people that were looking for that type of treatment. And if anybody was, they weren't denied that treatment. I had a partnership with Norfolk County, which we've had for many years, individuals seeking certain treatment that we couldn't do we would send them to where that treatment could be obtained. So, okay. but the good news is now we're all doing it. And, you know, at the end of this, I think we will have some legitimate data and we'll see if it, if it's working. Right. And I think the sheriff still has the, uh, the biggest detox in our county is, is, is the jail. And the people that I've talked to, whether going down to the jail and dealing with inmates or talking to people that I used to represent, uh, you know, you have methadone, you have suboxone, you know, weaning it down a little bit. The best way to do it is going cold turkey. And you don't have that. And, and, and to, to me, you don't have people that, uh, that some people want to use that to the extent that they can. Uh, some people want to get away from this stuff because they realize if they stay on that path, no matter what it is, opiates, suboxone, methadone, whatever, they're going to die. And that's really what happens. You're going to you keep, keep using this stuff. You're going to die. Right. You're going to go to jail. And then you're going to die. Mm -hmm. And how do you come around that? And that is the big thing. That, and that's, once again, things come back to education of kids, mm -hmm. keeping them out of this stuff before they get in it, once they're in it, incredibly difficult, incredibly challenging. And it's really terrible for the families as you're watching somebody that you love going down that path. And I, I would think that everybody knows somebody that has a, a family member that has gone down this path and you know maybe, God forbid, has passed away as a result of it. And so we just have to be stronger. Like the sheriff says, you have to have hope. And you also have to have a direction, mm -hmm. a direction that you're going. I think that's what we've had here. And as we go about, and I talk to other DAs, and the sheriff talks to other sheriffs, and you know, there's no pride of authorship of what we do. I say, copy everything we've got. Go on our website. This is everything that we've done. You know, you take it. You reinvent it for your your area, which may be a little bit different than ours. Uh, and I think that um, more people are getting on board with that. And I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to continue to spread what we're doing on the preventative end and on the reentry end uh, to make sure that people understand that uh, not only is it no longer your parents' marijuana anymore, it's not your parents' sheriff's office and you're not your parents' DA's office either. We're doing all sorts of different things. And when you say keep kids away from that stuff, you're not just talking about the hard stuff. You're talking about marijuana. You're talking about alcohol. You're sure. basically talking about all substances. So there are some people who say that illicit drugs should be decriminalized. And this is a question specifically for the DA, and then I have a question specifically for you, Sheriff. What is your response to that and, and why? They say, you know, it'll reduce crime, it'll reduce use, there'll be less appeal. The most used and abused drug is already legal. Mm. It's alcohol. And people use that and get that and drink it and do, unfortunately, they do terrible things and they hurt people. I've been to court and I've seen 
kids, young kids who have killed people, either their friends or somebody else in a car, and they're standing there in court, and as a judge is standing up there, sending them to they're going to go to jail for a minimum mandatory period of time. And I truly believe those kids, when they're, when they're crying their eyes out, saying, I wish it was me, I wish this didn't happen. Everybody in that courtroom loses. Everybody. Right. Right. So that's, that's when you're talking about the decrim, and people say, oh, it works over in Europe, or it works somewhere else, where I read on the internet. I don't believe that at all. And it doesn't work here either. And these are, these are very difficult and dangerous drugs. Don't get me wrong, morphine or opiates, are, there's a reason for them, you know, for, on the medical side of them, in, a, in that sort of functioning where a doctor is going to prescribe that for you. But out on the street where you don't know what you're getting and people are throwing things into it that you may be thinking you're getting cocaine and you're just going to have a, a fun Friday night, you could be overdosing that night and dying. Right. So to me... I believe that we should not decriminalize it. I think it's a mistake, and I don't think it works. Sheriff, we recently had Steve Sweeney on the program to talk about the work that he does with inmates at the Norfolk County and uh, Plymouth County Houses of Correction. How much of what you see with prisoners in Plymouth County is related to substances? That is a great question, and I appreciate, number one, the way that you asked it and the fact that you asked it at all, because I have learned tremendous amount. You know, when I was an assistant DA, if you would ask me that question, I would answer it differently than I would today. Hmm. And, I, the, and as again, uh, the data, I would say, well, that's easy enough. I can run the data and see how many individuals are here for possession of alcohol or possession of drugs or the manufacture of drugs or the distribution of drugs. And that's all very quantifiable. I can tell you exactly how many people mm-hmm. are there for that reason. But as I saw on the correctional rehabilitative side of the house that my answer now, I I can give you that number, but it's not accurate. The number I think that would be more accurate would be when you looked, you got to take a deeper dive and you got to figure out why did this person commit a violent act? Well, it's not necessarily alcohol or drug related, but it is. The charge is not, but this person did something that they never would have done many times but for the fact that they were acting under the influence of drugs or alcohol, which is an even, you know, that ship has sailed. And uh, the analogy between the the opioids and the alcohol is is an apt one. And I remember Tim and I talking uh, to groups back when we were talking about the legalization of the recreational marijuana and pointing out those analogies of the alcohol and said, boy, the alcohol's worked out so well for us why not do this with the, with the drugs, right? And, you know, people would laugh and chuckle about that, but it, it's the truth. It really is. So I think the vast majority of people that are currently sitting, either awaiting trial or serving sentences in the House of Correction down in Plymouth, are there, the majority, because of drugs or alcohol. And you're saying that they committed those acts under the influence, but they weren't necessarily charged with possession or distribution. Or Correct. Yeah. It, and what, just to clarify that a little bit, people, you know, if someone goes and commits an assault and battery against somebody else, they hit them or they use a dangerous weapon, they hit them with an object, let's say. And that's the charge that you see. But when you read the police report, it's going to tell you much more than just that charge would tell you. Mm-hmm. It's going to tell you that the two of them were smoking marijuana and drinking tequila shots and that they got into an argument as the night progressed. And these could be the best of friends right. under normal circumstances. But because of their impairment, because of the substances, each of them acted, or at least one of them acted, in a way that they never would have acted had they not been under the influence of that substance. So right. sometimes there's not even a drug charge that could be related because it's been injected or it's, or it's been ingested or drunk. And those people do things. Now, that's not to say there aren't bad people. There are bad people. And I'm here to tell you that they're out there. Uh, And they're going to do bad things regardless of what they ingest. But there are some people who are not so bad, who do bad things because they're careless under the influence or emboldened under the influence. You know, it really hampers their ability to make decisions in a good way. And people get hurt. And people end up in jail because of that. So... And as Tim said, I've been in, in court when those cases have gone up, you know, the motor vehicle homicide, because one kid drank too much and they drove and somebody died and, you know, everyone's life is ruined. So right. we don't want to see that happen. So in the correctional facility, you know, we concentrate on trying to uh, address those issues that some people, you know, don't even identify as issues when they come. Oh, so I drink every weekend or whatever it is. It's not an issue. 
those people aren't necessarily ready to make that choice to seek that treatment, but we're there to offer that treatment and encourage that treatment. And we have ways to do that. Uh, people are offered incentives within the correctional facility to enter those treatment programs. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but the important thing is that we're going to continue those treatments. And we've got a very dedicated program staff. Our security staff is great, but the program staff is down there looking to those people, interviewing those people, talking to those people, seeing what it is that circuitous path that brought them to that seat in front of them in the booking area of the Plymouth County Correctional Facility. And the idea is to point out to them that maybe a couple of choices would have put you in a more comfortable seat in a better setting. The criminal justice, and I've said this, the sheriff has said this, the criminal justice system is the depository of drug issues and mental health issues. Mm. And many times it's ill-suited to do that. And many times we end up pounding square pegs into round holes. So to me, dealing with drug issues, dealing with mental health issues, it's a much bigger thing than looking at the, the sheriff or the DA or the criminal justice system. It's the entire society as a whole. And how do we help people? How do we help families on the front end, whether they have mental health issues or drug issues? How do we keep people out of the criminal justice system? Mm -hmm. That's justice, criminal justice reform. How do we continue to do that? And that's why it's so important. That's why you know going on shows like yours and other community towns uh, shows that are out there, letting people understand what it is, what we're trying to do, and making an awareness of how do you get the word out through our legislators? How do we get help for these people on the front end and on the back end? And that's the way we're going to, I think, continue to remain positive. And I, and I thank Tim for saying that and, and touching upon earlier what he had said. I think the greatest injustice of our time is the fact that the largest provider of mental health services and drug and alcohol detox service is the sheriff. Interesting. Is the jail. These are services that if they were provided adequately in the community, these individuals would not have ended up with us in the jail. So right. I think that's something that, you know, as Tim says, criminal justice reform, is it needed? Yes, it is, but not where we're concentrating those efforts right now. That's very interesting. And do you think that that's due to a lack of resources, a lack of education, a lack of awareness, all of the above? It's probably all the above, although I, 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 I think there's probably more resources out there than you know, whether they be on a state or federal level. I think that you know we need to have um, places where individuals who are going to hurt themselves or other people, and maybe they haven't committed a crime yet, but where they need to go get the help. They need to get people who have not been diagnosed with medical issues or, or, or psycho psychological issues, people who are not on medication. Um, many times what we'll see when we go to parole hearings up in Natick, individuals who have been in custody for committing a very serious crime, now at the in, in the institution, maybe for the first time, they're getting education and other things such as that, but they're also being diagnosed and they're also getting their medication, and they're completely different people when they're on their meds. Right. The question is, if they're going to get paroled, are they in a position where they're going to continue to take their meds? Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Does somebody have a plan that somebody can help them when they go back out into the real world? That's why, to me, before the terrible event happens, how do we get more involved in people's lives, not in the criminal justice system, but on the social justice system? How mm -hmm. do you get more people out there, and how do you get places to put people so that they don't end up in jail? They're going to end up someplace place where they're going to get uh, the help that they need and also it will help the family you help somebody today that's got kids you're helping those kids too and it's a much i think we need to really focus not just on the small piece that's the the da or the sheriff or the criminal justice focus on everything and when you do, I think we can make a difference, like we have with what we're doing here. Right. When you think of the sheriff, you think of the DA, you don't think of us being involved with preventative issues. Right. But we are. And sometimes we're the only people that are doing that, mm -hmm. and because it's in our lap. So therefore, I think the, the things that we've done have been great, but I think if we get everybody rowing in the same direction, we'll all be better off. Yeah. I think we're, we're a victim of the history of, of the systems, uh, multiple systems here. Uh, before I was... Uh, uh, a lawyer or an assistant DA, I used to work in the mental health field as well. I was a direct care worker, so I got to see oh. firsthand some of these uh, some of these issues at work. And I know back in the 1970s, you saw a, a wholesale shuttering of many of these mental health facilities. And many, it was a good thing that they were closed. But the problem was, rather than fixing the issue with those facilities, and they called it mainstreaming, I remember the term at the time, Oh, we don't want individuals institutionalized we, because those institutions are inhumane. So let's put those individuals into the mainstream society, mainstreaming, and let's see what happens. 
And as Tim said, you know, some of these folks would assimilate fine, and that was great, but a lot of them would act in ways that were non-conforming to our expectations as a society. In many, and some of it was not even criminal, but our police weren't trained to deal with these individuals on the street, and invariably would end badly. And those people would end up in a correctional facility. And once we got them on their medications and stabilized and and uh, in a safe place, they, they were different people. Almost like a giant social experiment. Yeah, gone wrong. And if we were, you know, the resources need to or should have been expended back then, you know, the, the problem was an inhumane uh, mental health facility. Well, rather than fix the facility, they just closed it and put people out onto the street. And that anyone is surprised by how that turned out is amazing to me. Now, I was just a kid back in the 70s when that was going on, but even then as a kid, I said, this, this can't be right because I knew people that had mental health issues that, that needed those services, and now they were without. So, right. you know, you, could, you knew how that story was going to end. So I think if we wanted to dedicate resources, I'd advocate for resources on the mental health and the substance abuse side of the house. Let's help those folks before they get to the courtroom and, God forbid, before they get to the jailhouse. You know, right. that's, that is the, the single greatest thing we could do for justice. Right. Not just criminal justice, justice. Right, yeah. right. Well, that's the work that we do in the field of yeah. prevention is to make sure that parents in particular are educated. Because once parents are educated, they can have those important conversations with their kids. Kids don't necessarily always listen. Their brains are not fully developed. They're going to take risks. They're going to try things. But if parents are involved in having those important conversations around the dinner table, that has a significant impact on the decisions that their kids make. So this question is for the DA. Prom and graduation season is coming up, and it's always a good time to talk about the social host law and the Good Samaritan law. Both of those laws are very important for parents to understand. Could you please briefly describe what the Good Samaritan law is and what the social host law is? Yeah, I mean, I mean those. Uh, it's not unusual for us to go out during prom season and talk to schools and talk to... Uh, to the kids, and many times some of the schools we go to, the kids have to buy their prom tickets at that meeting, and they have to bring a parent. So needless to say, some of the kids in that room are not very happy to be there. <laughs> but I think it's important for the parents to understand, because uh, the problem that I think we continue to face many times, unfortunately, is that a lot of parents uh, want to be friends with their kids. And I often say, yeah, I want to be friends with my kids too, when they're 25 or 26. Mm -hmm. But when they're 14, 15, 16, you know, you're the parent. And they have to understand that there's a line. So if, if you're going to have a party at your home and you are going to furnish alcohol, that's a mistake. Because if somebody leaves that home and you furnish that alcohol and something terrible happens, and it does happen, somebody gets hurt, somebody gets killed, somebody gets maimed, there's going to be a lawsuit against you, against your homeowner's policy, assuming you have one, assuming it's going to give you appropriate coverage, and you're going to have to deal with that. I mean, it, it's such a, we've had cases right around here in Plymouth County and Norfolk County that are dealing with people who have had huge judgments against them because the parents wanted to furnish that alcohol. Or a parent will, will I spoke at one of these schools once and, a, and a, a woman came up to me and she said, you know, our, our school, we're going to have our prom and it was at some Boston hotel. And she said, you know, the kids are going to want to have their privacy. So I was thinking of getting another room so that the kids could be there by themselves and the parents wouldn't be there and they could do whatever they want in there. You know, but obviously we wouldn't allow them to have alcohol. And I'm like, well, you understand that they're 15, 16, and 17. They're not stupid. Right. They're going to get that. So they're smarter than we are. And they can figure all this stuff out. Or if you're going to have a party at your home, uh, oh, we're going to take your keys. Well, you're probably going to get dad's keys to his truck in, his, in, his, in the driveway, not the keys they're driving with. Mm -hmm. and, and so people need to understand that you have responsibility regarding the kids coming to your house if you can have those parties. There's criminal issues you can be charged with for just, you know, giving minors alcohol, furnishing alcohol to them, the contributing to the delinquency of a minor. All of them carry with them the criminal penalties. But the biggest penalty is if you provide that stuff and somebody goes out and does something and changes people's lives forever. Right. You're going to potentially lose your home. You're going to potentially be sued. And you know, once you get the lawyers involved, somebody says, oh, geez, it wasn't me. It was somebody else that brought the alcohol. I guarantee you, once the lawyers are involved, they're suing everybody. And let the, let the insurance companies figure it out. That's what's going to happen. And you're going to probably go to court and deal with those issues. Uh, the other, the Good Samaritan Law, is something that came in about a few years back, so that people are using. And what, what invariably would happen is that two individuals say they were using an opiate. 
and somebody overdosed. It wasn't unusual for somebody to leave that person there to pass away because of the fact they didn't want to get charged with a crime. If you are using, you and that other person are using, you will not be charged criminally if you call 911 if somebody overdoses. That's not, you don't get a pass for trafficking or distributing drugs themselves, but if you're using you two individuals, make the call, save somebody's life. That's what it's about, and that's why it changed a few years ago, I think, to, for the better. Uh, and uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of times now you have people who are using the drugs. It's not unusual to see w when something happens. They've got Narcan with them. Mm -hmm. Narcan is readily accessible. It's readily available. You can get it. Uh, everybody should get it so that they have it in their home because you never know what's going to happen. You never know where you're going to be. A lot of people I know carry it in their purses, and they have it with them in case something happens. We've had people overdose in court, and um, you, know, you, ne you need to make sure you have access to that stuff. Right. Just following up very quickly on what Tim had to say, when people leave custody from the House of Correction down in Plymouth, you know, we provide them with certain information about continuing medical care that they were having, things of that nature. But one of the things that they have access to as they leave is taking Narcan with them when they leave. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and we say, you know, it may not be for you, but someone you're with, we don't ask any questions about it. It's, it's available. Right. Yeah. That's great. So, Sheriff, you service the adult population in prison. What happens to younger people who are found guilty of a substance-related crime? Where are they housed? They used to be housed. We used to have a wing within the correctional facility where juvenile offenders would have been housed. And that was a deal that was made with the state many, many years ago, long before, uh, probably four or five sheriffs ago. Uh, that was one of the things that I sought to eliminate because I didn't think that that was an appropriate placement for a juvenile to be in an adult correctional facility. Even though they were separated, you know, sight and sound, they need to have separate freestanding facilities. The Department of Youth Services uh, of the Commonwealth will provide those services. And there are places around the Commonwealth that, uh, that they can be placed. And I do know, having spoken now, I don't have much involvement with them, but I do know that they are as interested as we are. We do see them uh, occasionally at conferences, those individuals who are command staff within the D Department of Youth Services, they are committed to providing the same types of programs, but tailored more specifically toward young individuals. Uh, an individual who is 18 or older will come to us, and I still consider that to be a kid, mm -hmm. uh, and we will provide those services as well. But I do know that a similar catalog of services that the sheriffs will provide, and in Plymouth County, we're, we're not unique. I'll say that the other sheriffs... The only uh, county in Massachusetts without a correctional facility is Nantucket. They would go to uh, Barnstable, to the Cape. All of the sheriffs have a great catalog of programs, and we're in constant contact with each other talking about those things. And I do know Tim and I talk all the time about those things, and uh, we've talked about having uh, Tim and I are going to put something together, hopefully, and get a joint meeting of the sheriffs and the DA so we can talk about these issues. I think it would be a great thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, D.A. Cruz, Massachusetts has 31 adult drug courts currently. It's been said that for every $1 invested in drug court, taxpayers save as much as $3.36 in avoided criminal justice costs alone. How does the drug court system work exactly? Well, I mean, here in Plymouth County, we have four district courts and we have four drug courts, which we're, we're lucky to have those because there's some 80-some-odd courts throughout the Commonwealth. Uh, and, and basically, if an individual is c c arrested with a crime and charged with a crime, that individual, after they're found guilty, can go to the drug court, which is going to be a version of probation. It's going to be a version of things that they have to do to stay clean to try to help them. And are if, these, sorry to interrupt, but are these people who've been arrested on drug-related yes. charges? Yeah, but you, you, you don't necessarily have to be related. Uh, it has to be drug-related charges. It can be you, you have no drugs on you, but you were under the influence. So okay. therefore, you committed a violent crime. You broke into an, a house or an apartment, things along those lines. So whatever it is that gets you there is because of your drug issue, your substance abuse issue. And when you go in there, they have all sorts of education and training for these young men and women. And it takes a long time, and it is not unusual for people to be unsuccessful. That's why it's really important when you talk to the judges who are in charge of those respective courts. They need that something hanging over their head. Because lots of times people go to jail for a little bit of time. 
And most people, with all due respect, sheriff, they don't like to be there. They don't want to. They don't want to. If they go, they don't want to stay, uh, and they don't want something hanging over their head. So they're going to try to do the very best that they can to stay away from the drugs that they're dealing with. Can they get a job? Can they stay sober? Can they take their 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 urines or whatever it may be that they have to be doing on a daily basis? Making sure that they can stay clean. And I think for the most part, they do. They do a great job. Uh, and they graduate. We had a graduation last week uh, of a number of young men and women, and they were doing. Uh, they did everything that they were supposed to do. So yes, do you save money in the long run for those individuals? Yes. But just as importantly, I think, as you save the families from all the turmoil that's going on with their kids, all the challenges that the families face, the families that get these calls in the middle of the night that their kid's been arrested, that this kid is now being held with a sheriff down the jail. And you're horrified by that. How does that happen? How does your child get involved in that? And most importantly, once they're in it, is there an avenue to get them out? Drug court's there to get people out of those problems. Sheriff, they say that when it comes to addiction, there's a lot of denial associated with the disease and that people need to hit rock bottom before they really take a, you know, an account of, of what they're doing with their lives. Mm-hmm. Do you see that take place within the mm-hmm. correction system? Yeah. Do you see it with the young people that you're working with? Is it sort of a wake-up call for them, these young people that are 18, 19, 20 years old that you described? Sure. That's a great question, too, and I appreciate that. There are many individuals that uh, present to us as on the younger side at the front end of their issue are shocked at, Tim said, the family members say, how did did my child get into jail? I think that shock is amplified when the individual is sitting there and saying, oh my God, how did I get here? Mm. And there is a very good opportunity at that moment in time that that person has just had an epiphany and you are going to be able to get that person back onto the straight and narrow, and hopefully they will not come back. Unfortunately, a lot of times they, they do come back because they get outside, you know, boy, I dodged a bullet, I did a, a program, or I was freed on bail, whatever it is. They get back out into the community and say, well, what are the chances I'll get caught again? Well, and they get caught up with their same social group right. as and well. Right, and that's one of the big issues with reentry. So I do think that as a general proposition, hitting rock bottom is something that is oftentimes necessary to get these individuals back onto a track. But we work very hard, and it's not to say it has to happen in every case. And rock bottom is different for a lot of people. Right. You, know, uh, you lose friends or you lose family members who won't talk to you anymore because of your conduct. <clears throat> Sometimes that's a sufficient bottom for someone, and we will provide those rehabilitative services within the correctional facility. Now, it's interesting to note that Tim had touched upon the drug courts, you know, in response to your question. Mm -hmm. As we sit here today, we have historic low numbers of individuals who are currently incarcerated. And that's just not in Massachusetts, that's statewide now, or nationwide. So as those numbers, and they've been declining for years, this isn't a COVID thing, this isn't, this is something that's really made people think about that though. So you've seen those numbers declining during my a 20-year, 18-year term as the sheriff. The high numbers of po- population we've had in the correctional facility while I've been there is about 1,700 inmates at any one given time. As we sit here today, we're between 550 and 600 inmates. No kidding. Yes. And those numbers are reflected not just in Plymouth County, but statewide. And Massachusetts is the least incarcerated of all the 50 states. So, And what that means is the fewest number of people in jail uh, or prison based on 100,000 of population. So our numbers are the lowest of the 50 states and historically low, as you can see anecdotally when I I talk about those numbers. Now, what what this does, it presents us certain challenges within the facility. You know, as you're trying to, and certainly it makes things easier in some ways because it's not as crowded. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our staff is able to do more individualized attention to those folks that will need that. But it presents a challenge to the community because a lot of those individuals that would have historically come to us for that treatment, they're not coming to jail. So what are we going to do? I know the probation department, the drug courts, they're doing the best that they can, but that frees up some of my resources to perhaps team up with them. And that's some of the stuff that I've talked about with, at least in Plymouth, with our judiciary uh, and with some of our probation people. How can we partner, utilize our, and with Tim's office, through like diversion programs for juveniles? Mm-hmm. How do we get people involved in community service projects and, patient, and programs that people can do 
on an outpatient basis type of thing. So I think that you know we'll we'll feel our way through this, and we'll partner with those, that other branch, the judicial branch of government, and hopefully we're going to come up with some pretty good ideas and some pretty good utilization of resources that maybe are being underutilized right now. So I think this could be a good thing. Very interesting. Is there yeah. a lot of red tape involved in that, or are you able to pivot? Well, I'll, I'll get back to you. I'll let you know. I, <laughs> I, I'm not anticipating any red tape. One of the nice things about, uh, um, I'm sure, the DA's position, my position, you know, he doesn't answer to the Attorney General, and I don't answer to the Secretary of Public Safety. We're able to do a lot of these things. And as long as we can do it in a manner that doesn't threaten our, you know, co-equal branch of government, you know, we're working together here. Mm -hmm. The judiciary and probation has community corrections. You see those vans. Mm -hmm. We used to have individuals. We've got the Plymouth County Farm down on Obery Street in Plymouth. And that was a great, it's a great community resource, and it remains that. But we used to have inmates that could work the farm. Those inmates that could work the farm that we could put over there, you know, nonviolent individuals that, you know, aren't really a threat to anybody, they're not coming to jail anymore. And maybe that's a good thing, but not always. Because right. those individuals could benefit from some of those programs that we have. So we're going to work with the judges. We're going to work with probation to say, how can we work together to utilize the resources that we have in corrections to help these people get in? And not even just correctional programs necessarily. The DA and I have teamed up on uh, many occasions. This is a, a great thing. We're doing quarry-friendly job fairs. So, you know, everyone and his cousin is looking for individuals to work in their businesses these days. Right. And once in a while, you know, maybe there's someone who's come through that's got uh, a skill that would be employable by these individuals. You know, they're low-level offenders. They have dealt with their issues. Or they're doing well. And they're willing to take a chance on these people. So... These are the types of things that you know we're doing together that I don't think they're really doing anywhere else, and I think it's making a difference. Corey is a criminal offender record information, so it's basically it's your record. Mm -hmm. So that if your record is going to prevent you from getting a job or going to prevent you from getting into a school, things such as that, these job fairs, the employers, potential uh, employers, understand people have records already, and they're willing to talk to those individuals, notwithstanding that, to try to get them a job and help them get a leg up so they can go forward. So I think these are the great things that we're doing here in Plymouth County that they're not doing anywhere else, but I think you're going to see them happening more and more as time goes by. So my final questions pertain to advice that you may have for parents and kids. If you had to synthesize a piece of advice into just a really short little elevator pitch for parents with regard to youth substance use specifically, what would that be, DA Cruz? In a nutshell, be a parent, not a pal. Make sure that you, you talk to your kids about the, the challenges that they face. Uh, the thing, a little thing that you may think is nothing could affect your ability to go forward, go to college, to get a job. Be very careful. And plus, it's a much bigger picture out there. You could hurt somebody, hurt yourself, mm -hmm. hurt somebody that you love. Uh, and I, I think our parents being parents is probably the most important thing we can get because we have, unfortunately, a lot of people who just want to buddy up with their kids, like I said before. Uh, and that's great. But uh, the kids need to understand that there's discipline and that you need to be held accountable for your actions, whether you're 12, 18, 24, whatever it may be. Accountability is important for people's lives, I believe. And if they understand that there's consequences, I think that is something that is a positive thing that we can teach our kids to understand that you, know, you can't do whatever you want because you want to do it. And also, a lot of the kids nowadays, the one word they never hear is no. Don't be afraid to, afraid to say, tell your kids no. Right. Great advice. How about you, Sheriff? My advice to parents would be fairly concise, but somewhat wide-ranging. And I would, I would paraphrase it as pay attention. Be mindful. Look at what your kids are doing. Listen to what your kids are saying to you. Look at what, who they're hanging around with and what those individuals are doing. So I think if you pay attention, and my parents were great at that. They knew where I was. They knew who I was with. And even though I even didn't realize. Even without cell phones. Right, even without <laughs> cell phones. And they knew what we were doing. And, uh, you know, I would hear about it if they didn't necessarily think it was a good thing. So I think that's important that parents be involved and pay attention. And when you see something that's of concern, follow up on it. You know, a little offhand comment that somebody makes sometimes is significant. Right. And I think that's important. Now, to the kids... I would, at the risk of uh, repeating my grandfather, who said many things to me, I, I would say to the kids, and I don't know that it would mean anything, because at the time it probably didn't mean much to me, but I think about it today. 
he said to me, a smart person learns from his mistakes. But a really smart person, he learns from other people's mistakes. Oh, that's so great. That's, yeah, so that's what I would say to the kids. And hope that they understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> right, right. Well, it'll give something for them to think about anyway. Yes, yeah. And what about you, uh, D.A. Cruz? What advice would you have for kids specifically? Listen to your parents, <laughs> all right? Um, you know, s- stay in school, stay active, have fun. Understand that uh, the, the world is not um, on Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat. Um, be careful when you're out there. Uh, you know, you're only young once, and you have an opportunity to have a lot of fun, uh, and you should do that. But understand that the world is a very challenging place. And if you ever have, if you ever get in trouble, if you are in a situation, the people you can always go talk to, believe it or not, are your parents. Talk to your parents, let them know what you're doing, and you'll all be better off. I'm very glad that we're in, in, a, in a position we can talk about these things, and I'm very appreciative of what Hingham Cares does, which is really kind of a leader in a lot of the community groups that we have here. So I'm thankful uh, that you're here and that you can ask those questions and that we can come and give some information, and hopefully people can extrapolate from it as they will. Where can people go to learn more about the Plymouth County outreach program and any other resources, anything that is offered through the Department of Corrections? For the DA's office and all the things that we do there, all the different programs, you go to Plymouth DA. Dot com, uh, and all the information is there. And I always tell uh, people that if you have a, if something happens and you want to make a phone call, please don't hesitate to call our office. We always have an assistant DA on call, 508-584-8120. You can call, you can talk to a real person and have that question. But if you just want to go online, PlymouthDA.com, and everything that we do on the front end, the back end, and the middle, it's all right there. Yeah, and similarly for the sheriff's office, we're www.pcs dma.org and we've got an extensive website you can see uh, what we're up to uh, both on the inside programs and what's going on on the outside Uh, it's it's a great website and I encourage people to visit terrific thank you and there are also links on the DA and the sheriff's websites to the Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force specifically so if people want to learn more about that initiative they can go they can google Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force or they can find that information on your website correct thanks very much for having us appreciate it thanks for having me I appreciate it for more info or to get involved go to hinghamcares.org